Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello, and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today, I'm here with Peter Lehrman. He is the CEO of Axel.com. It's the internet's trusted platform for buying, selling, advising, and financing private companies. Thank you for being on the show today, Peter. Oh, it's great being here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I always like to start off with the origin story. I kind of joke around all the time and say, hey, you were born, and then you ended up on a show about mergers and acquisitions. Can you fill out the <laughs> gap in between? But let's talk about there's a lot to cover. You guys do so much. Let's talk about kind of your background and how it led you to build Axial. The short answer to it is right before starting Axial, which um, uh, was in 2009, I was in graduate school in California, Northern California, and got sort of stumbled luckily into an opportunity to work part-time while I was in graduate school for a private equity firm that was in the business of buying small and medium-sized American businesses, that company specifically was focused on buying mostly instrument businesses, testing and instrument businesses, measurement businesses. They had a really interesting niche. And it showed to me how challenging the deal sourcing process was, particularly when you were looking for very specific types of businesses and you were looking for very small businesses. Big businesses tend to have a lot of information on them. There's a lot of information on the internet. If they're public, there's gobs and gobs of information, but small businesses tend to have very little information on them that's freely or easily available. And so deal sourcing is very hard in the small business M&A category in a way that's unique. And instead of graduating from grad school and continuing on as an investor in businesses, I decided to start Axial and see if I could solve the problem for the market at large. So that's the short version of the story. Um, The longer version of the story is that I had a one chapter prior career. I ended up starting my career after college working at a company that was started by my brother and one of his co-founders. And that was a information business based in New York that was focused on serving public market investors. So people who buy and sell stock and bonds in, in publicly traded companies. And the reason that is, I guess, a substantive part of the origin story is before any of my work investing in private companies, I had spent all of my sort of career in and around the investment in public companies. And what you see when you go from public companies to private companies is how stark the contrast is in terms of how much information is available on the businesses, how well organized the businesses tend to be, the quality of the financials. There's just so much more about private companies, which is harder to discern, harder to find them, harder to get reliable information on them. And so it just created like a really fruitful area to think about trying to build a new business. So I sort of put the two experts, sort of the two chapters together with the start of Axial in 2009. 
You went to school in Northern California. Where was that at? I was Stanford for awesome. business school. Yeah. Awesome. That's cool. Used to live yeah. right down the street from my, my wife's from Palo Alto. Yeah. Now I'm about an hour and a half north of there in the redwood forests of Northern California. I love it here. Let's go mm-hmm. into, you've built a pretty cool ecosystem as I see it because it's complete. It's not just from marketplace. Like some of the competitors out there biz by sell. It's almost just a listing. I still think it is nearly complete of what you guys built. You got something for the buyers, you got something for the sellers, and you built something for the advisors. Let's go kind of in a different order. Let's just talk about what's built there and what you did for the sellers and how you help them. And then we'll kind of go from seller to buyer to the advisor broker, if you want. And let's just talk about Axial and what's, how it serves those three markets. Well, there's two primary things that Axial tries to help sellers with. The first, and this is in no, no order necessarily, but there's two answers that we try to help a seller or someone who's thinking about selling their business get the answer to or get some answers or some ideas around. One answer is to the question, who are good brokers or M&A advisors who might be well-placed to represent me and my company when and if I decide to sell the company? So if you've decided as a business owner that you want help selling your business and you're not going to DIY it, we want to be in a position at Axial to give you data and empirical information that helps you narrow the funnel of potential brokers to interview to compete to represent you and your business. You don't want to pick a business broker just because they're the ones that are emailing you the most, or they're the ones that are cold calling you the hardest. You really want to go through that process with some good data. And so we have a lot of free data on the productivity and the performance and the track records of brokers and M&A advisors. We make that available to business owners at no cost. The second uh, answer that is always on the minds of sellers or people that are curious about or thinking about selling over the next, call it 12 to 36 months, sort of nearer term or intermediate term potential sellers is who would be interested in buying my business? How many potential buyers are there out there? What do they look like? Um, What are their names? Where are they based? Why would they be interested in a business like mine? And that's an answer that we are well suited to to provide some really, really good feedback, again, to sellers on. So when you upload a confidential profile on Axial as a seller, you get essentially immediate access to a subset of all the buyers on Axial that are most potentially relevant to you. And you can see a bunch of data on who they are, kinds of transactions that they have done, why they're interested in businesses like yours. And the answers to why they're interested could vary, right? If you run a software business, there may be a bunch of investors who only buy software companies and they have a list of other software acquisitions that they've done. And so you can look at that buyer and say, okay, this is a really specialized buyer. They're very specialized in the software category, but you may also see buyers there that are interested in buying software businesses, but they also buy other kinds of businesses. They buy software businesses, they buy services companies. And so you can kind of see whether or not the buyer is hyper-specialized or is a little bit more generalist in nature. But broadly speaking, there's two questions that business owners think a lot about when they're thinking about selling their business, or maybe three. One is, how much is my business worth? Two, who should help me represent myself in the sale of the business? And three, who's the ideal set of ultimate buyers that I should be talking to? And we try and help with two of those three. I was looking at all your resources you have on your website too, and you have in-depth resources for all three. A lot of buyers probably would have, or sellers, sorry, would even some buyers would have of the acquisition entrepreneurial level would have a difficult time getting their hands around 
the discounted cash flows model. You have one heck of a spreadsheet that just makes it pretty plug and play. If you can identify certain financial information and plug it into the spreadsheet, it'll build it out for you. Pretty straightforward. Now I'm a nerd, so it looks straightforward to me. But you also, like I said, on that same resources page, you have, I just downloaded a list of analyzed brokers and mm-hmm. was kind of going through that. And like, it's pretty thorough. It's got some great information about why this brokerage and not and what you're looking for in it. Yeah, I can see that there, you guys have put some work into doing that. We were talking about before the show and you and I were talking about where I brought up the thing that in most states and a lot of states, there's just not a high bar of entry to become a broker. So having information that you guys prevent and having information that's peer reviewed that comes from your customer base, comes from your experience with them is critical because like a lot of states, there's no licensing requirements or if the licensing requirements is there, it's insufficient. I, I agree. If you try and think about big decisions that you make in your life, right? If you have a big medical procedure, you think carefully, ideally you're in a position to think carefully about you know, who is the doctor. You probably get a second opinion. You're certainly well advised to get a second opinion, right? If you're selling your house or you're buying a house, again, big decision thinking about the transaction, the costs, how to finance it, how to structure it, what is the house worth? Same thing if you're selling your house. There's real expertise in these bigger decisions. When you're selling a business, usually with almost no exceptions, every business owner who I've ever really spoken to, their business is always the biggest form of net worth in their life. So making good decisions about who you're going to hire to help you sell the business is a really, really important decision. And in a market, as you say, that doesn't have like, it's not like you have to go to four years of medical school to be a business broker, right? And then go and do a residency and an internship. So you're right. There isn't this like these like significant academic or other barriers to entry to being a broker, but that doesn't mean that it needs to be a fool's guess. There's a lot of data that you can ask for from brokers. You can obviously use tools like Axial if you're thinking about selling your company and you want some access to some free data. In the normal course of connecting with with brokers or M&A advisors, you can just ask them some basic common sense questions, right? How many transactions have you closed? Tell me some stories. What are the last few transactions you've closed? Can you introduce me to a couple of CEOs or business owners that you've advised? It's common sense blocking and tackling around the decision. And you don't want to skip those steps. You really want to make sure you do that work. And so that kind of gets a little bit into, I guess, the timeline for business owners when they're thinking about selling your company. You can't just wake up one day, all of a sudden decide you want to sell your company and successfully sort of race into the end zone. You've got to have the time to sort of do the prep work. And so planning ahead is pretty important concept as well for successful exits. I think that's one of the biggest wake up calls most people have is they're like, okay, I'm burned out on this. I want to sell, or I've got this medical issue. I got to sell or whatever reason. Yeah. And they think they can sell their business in the next six months. And if they want true full valuation and they haven't been planning and doing their financials as something that's built to sell, as opposed to something to minimize taxes, which most business owners try to do, then they've got a two to three year process of systemizing changing accounting practices, getting some history behind the new accounting and all that. So yeah, talked about the timeline. Let's talk about a seller decides he wants to sell, dumbles across the axial. And what's the process for them to work with the marketplace you guys built? 
I keep calling it a marketplace. What do you guys call it? That's a perfectly reasonable term for it. I mean, yeah. w- marketplace sometimes makes people think like there's this open public bidding dynamic between buyers and sellers. And none of that occurs on Axial. The whole thing is private. It's all confidential. The business owner is behind closed doors and gets to decide who they want to have conversations with. So we've never really used the term marketplace because we don't want people to think it's this open public square where you go and talk about selling your company. It's a very sensitive topic. And so we designed Axial more as like a confidential platform than as like an open marketplace like Craigslist. The metaphor is still accurate in many ways. I mean, again, the sellers can come to Axial. There's a lot of data on our, if you just go to the Axial website, you can see a lot of data, a lot of downloadable lists, a lot of resources. If you're actually looking to connect with advisors or potential acquirers, that's when you go through the process of uploading a confidential profile. And it's when you upload your confidential profile that you begin to get specific recommended matches for you and for your business and the transaction objective that you have. So there's lots that you can browse and research and read and download without creating any profile. But if you actually want to get specific matches and specific recommendations made for you, we need more data on who you are and what you're trying to accomplish. And you do that by uploading a confidential profile within the platform itself and just set up a username and password to to do that. Now, would you recommend a business owner find a competent broker and have them do that profile that before they upload anything, do you start seeing what the buyer's out there? Do you think that they should be working with somebody to make sure that looks the best it can look? Sorry, is the question, do I think that the seller should be partnering with an advisor or, do you, or what was there? Yeah, like the, in the timeline of what they do, they come there, they download the information and before they decide they want to see like, a list of who's out there to buy them. There's a confidential information packet, a, a list of stuff they need to tell you. A lot of the stuff on there, I have to imagine, is financial data and some other stuff that they either be guessing at or because they don't know the ad. There's a lot of stuff they don't know. If you're running a small business, there's a lot of, and I've only interviewed, I've only sat down with probably 250, 300, maybe a little over 300 businesses out of them. Only I can count on probably my fingers without needing any toes, <laughs> how many of them really had their financial act together, like really yeah. had it together. That if they came to a site like you and you start asking financial information, such as seller's discretionary earnings, I don't know what you ask for, EBITDA or anything that you would ask for. They mm. know about ad backs and all the other stuff. They could put a decent picture forward as opposed to most of these guys need to get a fractional CFO or somebody or an advisor of some sort to help them understand what that really looks like. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely a gradient of preparedness. The confidential profile that they create within Axial is not, they're not putting their hand on the Bible and saying, hey, this is my revenue and this is my pre-tax earnings. They can punch in an estimate. They can punch in actuals from last year's financial. The goal is to get them, is to have them create a profile that narrows the strike zone of potential partners. There's a really big difference between having a business with 10 million of EBITDA versus a business with a million of EBITDA. And you can compete for very different types of acquirers and very different types of advisors, depending on the size of your business. And so you really want to be, you want to just be narrowing the strike zone with this initial data upload. Of course, ultimately, when you go to market, and you're in the market talking with acquirers, you want to be pretty precise about your financials because 
any wobbliness there is going to create anxiety and doubt in the mind of buyers about just your preparedness and your financial acumen. And that only serves to hurt you in the sale process. But at this point, as a seller, just sort of experimentally beginning to upload and create a confidential profile. If you've got a business with a million of discretionary earnings, if you put in $900,000 or you put in $1.1 million, it doesn't like radically change the, the data results. Um, and so what you're really doing by creating this profile is some revenue, some either EBITDA or seller discretionary earnings. You can choose the industries in which your business operates, the types of industry and markets that you serve. Do you sell to consumers? Do you sell to businesses? Do you sell to the government? You can incorporate some keywords that are quite specific to your business. So there's a variety of things that you can select like that. Geography, to the extent that's a preference. There are certain advisors that are focused on certain geographies. There are certain buyers that are only buying businesses in California or they're only buying businesses in the Southwest. So you sort of go through this process, but not handing over this just boatload of hyper-detailed information. It's really more getting the strike zone narrow enough to the point where you can say, okay, here's a set of ideas for who you might want to be talking to. And here's why we're recommending these acquirers. And here's why we're recommending these M&A advisors or business brokers. Does part of that output show that these, because I know, and some business owners probably know that different buyers actually pay different amounts, right? A strategic buyer might pay more than just somebody who's wanting to be the operator. Private equity has a certain model they pay. Inside of the data that you put out, you could do you show them that here's the three types of buyers that'd be interested. Here's kind of, you give them any of that, like this, the one, this group typically pays three X to four X multiple, or do you not do that yet? That's a good question. And the answer is we don't do that. We don't do that for a couple of reasons. One reason is we frankly don't always know the answer and right. it would be great for us to have that data. If we had that data, I think we would be interested in sharing that data, although we would probably need to anonymize some of that data to protect the interests of the buyer. The Axial as a platform needs to like maintain a certain amount of neutrality and not disadvantage sellers or buyers inappropriately from one another, but that would be great data for us to have. We will delineate between strategic buyers and financial buyers and operators and search funds and holding companies. So you do get a sense for like the spectrum of buyers that are out there and the different sort of categories and classes that they fit into, but we don't speculate about like, this one's going to pay you a lot and <laughs> this one's only going to pay you a little. That's really hard to, that would be tough speculation for us. And I think it might set up the business owner for a disappointment or mismanaged expectations, et cetera, for a number of reasons. We don't do that. We do give them data on how many times, we will give them data on how many transactions have different buyers closed, how many transactions have they closed through Axial. We will give them data on how responsive they are. So we will give them a growing amount of data over the course of the evolution of the platform. We've sort of put more and more data in there, but the buyer's willingness to pay and how much they pay for different kinds of businesses is not something that we put out there. So out of all the people I've interviewed, I'm playing in a field just under the radar or probably your majority of your customers, in my mind anyway, there's a few main concerns of the seller, right? There is a certain group of seller who they built it to sell. They're trying to maximize what they get out of it. And that's what they're concerned about is who's going to pay the most. I think that's in the minority. Most of the business owners have built something. They love their employees like their family. 
and they have a legacy in their name. They're more concerned if they're going to sell, they need the money to retire. They need, it's part of their, the biggest asset they have. So they, the money is important, but one of the things I did in this discovery, and like I said, I've interviewed over a hundred people at this point. One of the discoveries I did at the beginning is who do these businesses actually sell to? And it surprised me that it's not the highest and best offer at all times. Often it's who's the best, safest pair of hands for what I've created at a fair and reasonable price. They're not going to take a low wall offer. That's an awesome dude with an awesome story. That's going to take care of the company. They're going to get their money. And Usually, when you really dig down to it, there wasn't that much difference between the two or three offers. It could be six figures, could be seven. some of these deals, seven figures. I would say probably 60, 70% of the time when I ask people who ends up being the buyer, it's not the highest offer. It's who, the, who that person had the most rapport with and had the most trust in. My concern is like there's two models, right? Or like maybe even a third one. Finding the right buyer for the right fit. Do you guys do some of that? What I refer to as the eHarmony magic, where you guys figure out what you're looking for in a seller and then give them some advice as, okay, this is a type of buyer that would match what you're looking for? Yeah. First of all, you're absolutely right. The highest bidder does not win these transactions. It's just not, I mean, it happens, of course, but it very often does not happen. I don't think that sellers are willing to take huge discounts in order to work with somebody who they prefer. But I think if a seller has a preference for a specific buyer, as long as that buyer is pretty competitive with the highest bid, they have a really good shot of winning the deal uh, without being the highest bidder. And as you said, the reason for that, I think, is unlike your house, which is like an inanimate object, and it's like whoever buys this, whoever pays me the highest price or Whoever's the all cash buyer, like that's who I want to sell my house to. With your business, you're leaving behind people. You're leaving behind your business's reputation. You're leaving behind your own reputation in terms of who you sell it to. And so there's just way more ramifications for who you sell your business to than who you sell your house to. And I think that's why you can outcompete the highest bidder in the purchase and sale of businesses in a way that it's very hard to outcompete the highest bidder in real estate. I think, again, Axial is really, really good. I think the one thing that we're really good at is matching business owners, M&A advisors, and acquirers based upon understandable, straightforward criteria, financial criteria, reasons for exiting, geography, EBITDA, revenue, industries. We're not like personality matchmakers. It's a really hard thing for us to do well on behalf of all of these different members that we serve. And it would be, again, it'd be a very speculative thing for us to try and enter into. The truth is that when buyers meet sellers and sellers meet buyers, like <laughs> there's chemistry, they know right away whether or not like this is someone who they might be interested in doing a deal with or not. And it's just part of the process that a business owner needs to be ready to go through is at some point they need to be ready to meet with these prospective advisors or meet with these prospective acquirers and figure out whether they have the right feeling about it. And it's just not, it's very, very hard for anybody else to sort of step in and make that kind of judgment call for a business owner. It's so personal. So we try and create good data on the buyers and the advisors on like understandable metrics that are easy to understand. But when it comes to 
things like chemistry and personality and other things like that, it's tough for us to speculate. So you guys collect data. Let me share a little bit of information. More than more times than I probably going to guess at here over the last few years, I've lost the seller's interest because they see that I build myself as an acquisition entrepreneur and they ask me what my plan is with their company. Right. And it's the, usually it's going to be to grow and sell it. I'm buying these to grow, combine with other stuff and sell. And the guys that are looking for a safe pair of hands don't want to hear that in the next five years, it's going to change hands again. Right. I'll be 51 in three weeks here. I don't see myself running anything for another 20 or 30 years. And so that's what some of these guys are looking for. So do you guys track any of that? That it sounds like, I think you said earlier, you started working on this in 2009. Is that right? So started working on the 2000. Do you have data? Like they held on to it. These transactions happen and they still own them. Or do you have any data on longevity of some of these deals or? We do have data on portfolio companies. So buyers and acquirers on Axial can contribute in their portfolio companies and when they acquired them and when they decided to exit them or if they still hold them as current holdings. And so you can get visibility into the status of acquirers' transactions and whether or not they still hold those businesses or whether they have bought those businesses and since then have sold those businesses. One of the other nice things about the way the M&A market sort of stratifies on the buyer side is, and it's not, it doesn't hold perfectly, but for the most part, the different sort of general categories of buyer gives a seller a good sense for whether or not the acquirer is like a whole, a buy to hold, a hold to own acquirer, or whether the acquirer is going to buy it and fix it up and then sell it at some point. So it's very unusual for private equity firms to buy businesses and hold them forever because private equity firms raise money from endowments and foundations and wealthy people. And they say, give us your money. We will invest in some businesses. We will aim to improve those businesses. And once we've improved those businesses up to a certain point, we will aim to then sell those businesses. And we will then return the money that you gave us. And hopefully we will return far more than you gave us. Right. And it's very hard for them to say to those endowments and foundations, hey, give us your money and we're just going to sort of hold on to it indefinitely and try and grow it. A lot of those investors, they need a time horizon on which they're going to get their money back. So it's unusual for a private equity firm to hold a business for much more than three to seven years. Whereas holding companies, the most famous of which is Berkshire Hathaway, but there are many, many, many holding companies out there, all kinds. Holding companies tend to hold businesses forever. They buy businesses and they tend to hold them. And the idea behind holding companies is very, very good tax efficiency, but doesn't provide the same kind of liquidity that a private equity model has. Usually holding companies will not dispose of an asset. They bought it because they want to hold it forever. Search funds typically represent business, essentially someone who wants to buy and become the CEO of a business, develop the business for a while, most search funds raise outside capital. And so at some point they probably need to sell that business again. So as you go through the different categories of buyers, you have strategic buyer, right? If you sell your company to Google or you sell your company to 3M or to ExxonMobil or to some large privately held business, again, strategic buyers, they don't buy businesses and then sell them. They bought your business because they thought it was strategic to where they were developing their own company to. You may lose they may 
hire fire some of your back office staff, or they may change around where you do manufacturing, or they may plug you into their sales and customer relationships in ways that you don't like, but they're probably as a strategic buyer, not planning on buying your business and then selling it for profit three to 10 years later, they're planning on buying and holding it for indefinitely. So you can kind of tell who you're dealing with as a seller based upon sort of how they self-title. Awesome. Now we covered <clears throat> the selling side of it and we're starting to talk about buying. Let's talk about what's the in axial for buyers. A buyer comes to your platform. I'll quit using the word marketplace. A buyer comes to the platform <laughs> and they're starting to look for XYZ type of companies. What's the process and what did you build for the buyer side? What we built for the buyer side is an origination platform. It's a way for a buyer of small businesses to develop a pipeline of acquisition targets that is specific and precise and matched to the areas of interest and the types of businesses and the sizes of businesses that are of interest to them. And what we did was build it in a very specific way where the buyers need to articulate their interests in advance and then credentialize their interests through their profile. So as I was saying earlier, sellers create confidential profiles. Buyers typically create visible profiles and those visible profiles are then made available to sellers as well as to advisors who are representing sellers. And so a lot of the alternative sort of structures for business for sale marketplaces and the like on the internet create an interface for the buyer where the buyer can just essentially browse around and search for deals. And we don't like that construct for a bunch of reasons, because we think that when buyers are forced to explain the types of businesses that are interesting to them, and they're forced to then credentialize and explain why those are the types of businesses that are interesting to them, we can create better matches, more interesting matches that are more credible to the sell side. So for example, in your case, Ron, like you said, you're interested in buying media businesses, content sites, right? And you have a point of view on that category. You understand it. You come from that field. You may have been active there historically. And so if you were to use Axial to look for those types of businesses, you would create a profile that reflects that interest in that specific area. And you can only be matched with business owners who are looking to sell their business on Axial based upon the criteria that you set up. You can't just sort of like hunt around and browse around and then tell someone that you're interested in their business. We think there's a difference. You get a higher signal to noise ratio if you ask the buyers to declare their areas of interest upfront and then run the matching based upon that. So that's how it's structured from a buyer's perspective. And at this point, there's on a trailing 12 month basis, just to give you like a sense for the scale, there's over the last sort of 12 months or about 1800 different investment bankers, business brokers, or business owners in total who are using Axial to sell businesses. And so the biggest advantage for a buyer who's looking to source small business acquisitions that we hope to confer on them is just very, very easy and turnkey access to all of the distribution of, of sellers that are using the Axial platform. And frankly, if you were to connect with all 1,700 sellers and all 9,900 transactions, that would be a horrible fire hose of an experience for you. And so what we try to do is build a lot of distribution through the tools that we offer to advisors and to business owners, and then create this matchmaking system, which tries to sort of parse through and filter out the sort of signal 
from the noise. So for you, you're interested in buying small content sites. Another person who uses Axial is interested in buying plumbing companies and plumbing companies only in the Southeast. Another person is interested in buying landscaping businesses, commercial landscaping businesses in the Arizona area. We have other buyers who are looking to make SaaS software acquisitions and looking to do that all across the country. And so the buyers are able to define these strike zones. The strike zones on the buy side need to match with the strike zones that are built confidentially on the sell side. The matching engine then works backwards from having established those profiles on the sell side and the buy side, and then returns a list of potential acquisition opportunities to the buyer. Your alternatives as a buyer are doing a lot of traveling, a lot of networking, a lot of outbound cold emailing, a lot of outbound cold calling, purchasing lists, purchasing subscription databases. Those are other really viable ways of sourcing deals. And they're not bad ways at all. I don't like think those are bad ways. I think those are very good ways. But a lot of our customers on the buy side use Axial because it just saves them a lot of time. And it makes it easy for them to find acquisition targets that are a good fit for them to explore. And a lot of our clients on the buy side say, I'd rather spend my time evaluating real live acquisition targets than spend my time trying to find them in the first place, which kind of gets back to the experience that I was having when I was working at this private equity firm. I was spending the great majority of my time hunting for targets and very little of my time actually evaluating them and assessing them. And I think a lot of people in private equity and the world of acquisition prefer to spend their time studying and evaluating businesses as opposed to all of the grunt work associated with hunting for them in the first place. Yeah, I get it. I come from a background of sourcing deals, right? I've come from the real estate world. So direct mail and cold calling and all that stuff is just how we did both real estate on the multifamily level and the residential. So I carried that into this space. It's not only time consuming, it's a little co costly too. It can You can spend a lot of money, not a lot in the grand scheme of things, but you can spend considerable amount of money mailing letters and buying lists and not getting the results you want. A lot of people think, well, I sent 500 letters. I was like, yeah, but did you send 3000? Because <laughs> if you're good, if you're not, if you're not Dan Kennedy, if you're not like a rock star copywriter, the average return on direct mail is less than 2%. So right. that's, that means you're, you're average, you're normal. If you've never written direct mail and you've never like, especially in this space, you're going to do one of two things. You're not going to get much of a response and you're probably going to tick a lot of people off because people are pretty touchy about you sending a postcard saying, I'd like to buy your business because everybody that touches through there wants to know why the owner's wanting to sell. And he may not want to sell. You know, like he has no idea why he's getting this postcard in the beginning. That's uh, right. Yeah. I think one of the other things that also is challenging for a lot of acquirers is they their appetite to find acquisitions ebbs and flows over the course of a year or a multi-year period. So there are some periods where they are really, really looking for a lot of opportunities and are looking to build a lot of pipeline. And then all of a sudden they find a couple of really interesting opportunities. And so now they want to spend a, some significant portion of their time assessing those opportunities that are interesting. And that takes a lot of time. You have to go and get on a plane or a train or get in your car and go meet the business owner and go spend time with the business owner and get familiar with the business. And that's time well spent if you're in the business of making acquisitions. But now you're spending an increasing share of your time 
evaluating a business in depth and you're losing the that time that historically we're spending on trying to hunt for acquisitions. And then if that deal falls through or you decide you don't want to go through it, then you kind of have to like restart your whole pipeline and rebuild your whole pipeline because for the last one or two months, you were spending the disproportionate of your time evaluating a deal, submitting an offer, and that was your number one priority. So you sort of like walked away from your, your deal funnel. So those are like really frustrating challenges for if you're a big at scale private equity firm, you can have people just always out in the market hunting for deals. And so you can overcome a little bit of that sort of feast or famine sort of cycle. But if you're a smaller organization doing one or two deals at a time, your pipeline, your ability to maintain an even pipeline of opportunities is very, very hard because your, your time is always getting competed away as you go down the funnel on the opportunities that are most interesting to you. It's a really hard thing for acquisition entrepreneurs to fight back against. So the other thing inside of that for people that are thinking about, like I'm just gonna outsource my own deals to not to discourage you, but there's, he's talking about the ebb and flow cycle, but there's actually a lag that happens every time you restart it, right? <clears throat> if you look at the grand scheme of things, you, I'm gonna do the other hand because it kind of looks right. You send out your mailers, your outreach and stuff like that. In the very beginning, you get a high response rate, but it takes time to buy the list, to figure out what's gonna work, to send different letters out. And you finally get something that's starting to get responses. Now all of a sudden you've got one, two, four, five, ten 10 calls you have to make, deals you start to evaluate. You start doing the, whoa, I don't want the phone to ring anymore. So you don't send anything off. That last mailer you just sent out, that last group of things that's working, you're going to get responses on that that taper off over time. But if, say, you go through these five or six that you're evaluating and none of them are the right fit, you go kick that off. Now you got the whole lag time again. You got to send the same letter. Think you know what works as far as the letter works. But everybody thinks, well, that wasn't the right exact fit. So I'm going to change the letter and change the people I'm targeting to. And what they don't realize is they just started all over. So they have to figure that one out, that audience out that. And it happened to me in the real estate space all the time. We would get so busy that we just couldn't handle any more customers. We couldn't hire people fast enough. So I'd have to turn off all the mailers and their stuff. And then we would start to slow down and we'd have, it take a week, two weeks, sometimes three weeks to get that ramp back up to be busy again, because it takes time for those millers to start working and that response rate and stuff. So you'd have the, it's like you said, it's ebb and flow. You feast or famine, feast or famine. And yeah. it's not a steady thing. Like you said, if you're a big company, you can have a whole team doing it. You can vet deals. That's one thing, but it's cool to actually have a place where I can just go to and put my criteria and things get delivered. And when I turn it off, because I've got what I'm looking at, when I turn it back on, it's pretty instantaneous, right? It's not... I turn it back. I have to go figure it back out, tweak it, send out a bunch of stuff and wait a week or two for the phone to start ringing again. Yeah. Once you're active on Axial, we notify any matching seller that you have, you as a buyer are a potentially credentialed buyer for a particular transaction. And then the seller decides whether they want to invite you to the process. So I think that's one of the things that makes a lot of sellers comfortable is they're not just posting their deal on the internet like it's Craigslist. They get to decide which buyers they want to reach out to and engage. And the buyers don't know that their business is for sale unless they decide to invite them to do that. And then we also allow them to do that with anonymity. That's pretty powerful as well. They can remain anonymous at the top of the dialogue, the top of the funnel. I think you get a strategic advantage in that. If you think of how some of the competitors work like biz buy sell just pick the biggest dog in the park 
Bigs by Sale works great in LA and San Francisco and big cities if you've got a plumbing company because there's 15,000 plumbing companies within a 50-mile radius. They're not going to figure out which one yours are when you put your semi-anonymized listing on Bigs by Sale. I just moved from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I own a couple of small businesses there, one of which is a small pest control company. If a pest control company lists itself on Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Biz by Cell, no matter how discreet they try to be, I can probably guess who it is and call the owner. There's about 30 that I'm trying to buy. I'm looking to buy more of them just because I bought one too small. That said, <laughs> I bought it because I bought it to, to do that, to help friends and family and built it. But the point is, there's like 30 that meet my criteria in a 30 or 40 mile radius. And if one of them pops up there, I kind of know who it is because I cold call them occasionally. <laughs> I was like, hey, you, you interested in selling? That said, those guys don't list on that kind of site because if you're in rural Oklahoma, like we were looking at a concrete plant out there when I first was looking for businesses to buy, it's the only business within 30 miles of that size. So if they listed and said, we're in XYZ, Oklahoma, and we do concrete, and our revenue is this, you could pick a map out and go to Google Maps, type that city and that, you know, that even if you did just put it what county it was, you know who it is. So there's, they're not anonymous. And all the employees there, like that was a major, one we were looking at, that was a major job in that area. So if you didn't have, if you didn't work at that plant or one or the, the stockyard, basically where they buy and sell cattle, if you didn't work at one of those two places, you're driving 30 miles to work. There just wasn't anything else out there. So those guys don't, I don't think they get listed. That one particularly wasn't listed on any of those sites. And I don't mm -hmm. see a lot of those because there's just no way for them to be anonymous. Yeah. The advisors who, who are in the business of helping sellers sell their businesses, we have seen how sensitive they can be to revealing geography because in certain cases, the geography combined with the nature of the business and then the size of the business is like enough data points to really triangulate on who's selling. And so in, in plenty of cases, the advisors who use Axial to sell a business will withhold the, they'll either use the region or mm -hmm. if they're really skittish, they'll just select America <laughs> because yeah, you can triangulate sometimes on enough data points and basically narrow down who the business is. And that can be a really big issue for the business owner. It can also be the kind of thing that will get an advisor fired, right? Like if a business owner has hired an advisor to confidentially represent the business owner, and then the way in which the advisor merchandises the opportunity gives away too much information and it gets back to the business owner, that can spell the end of the engagement for the advisors. You do need to be careful about how specific your information is, particularly with respect to location, because as you said, in certain parts of the country, there's plenty of fish in the sea and there's no way to figure out who it is, but in some places it becomes like two or three or four potential ideas is all you need in order to really figure it out. Right. You brought up the advisor. That's the one thing we haven't touched yet. What is Axial provide to the advisor and what strategic advantage do they have by working with you guys? The advisors that use Axial have decided, effectively, they've decided that by using Axial, what they've basically said is the number of different buyers and the rate at which buyers arrive and enter this acquisition market and the way in which their preferences change is beyond what I 
as a single broker am capable of keeping track on with my own sort of homegrown database. It's not that they're abandoning their database and their own expertise and their own relationships with buyers, but any advisor who uses Axial is basically saying, there are so many private equity buyers, so many corporate strategic buyers, so many acquisition entrepreneurs out there. I don't have the time to build high quality handmade relationships with each of these buyers. I can't remember all of the different things that all of these different buyers are looking for. So I'm going to use tools and data to help me in that process. And Axial represents tool set and a data set for those advisors. So whenever an advisor uses Axial, they actually have a really similar experience to a seller. They upload a confidential profile, but as opposed to the profile being about their business, it's about their client's business and their client is the seller. So they upload the confidential profile. They attach themselves to the profile as the authorized agent selling the business. And then they begin to receive a big stream of data on here are all the potential acquirers. Here are the different types of acquirers. Here's the track records. Here's the histories. Here's their level of responsiveness. Here's how they've credentialized their interest. And then <clears throat> we automate all of the sort of email-based outreach to those buyers, including like the execution of NDAs and the ability to execute online signatures and distribute financial information. So all the like intense administrative burden associated with getting materials out the door uh, quickly to interested buyers, all of that is sort of integrated into the tools that we offer. So kind of like two or three things that the advisors like. One is the list of buyers is always evolving and growing on Axial. It's almost like they're outsourcing buyer database acquisition to us, right? And then they can reach all of those buyers on Axial. So they don't have to like export all of the email addresses and then create their own mailers and their own campaigns. Axial's built all of that integrated email campaign capability in, into our product for them. And then all of the annoying hassle and paperwork of NDAs and sending out information memorandums, all of that has been digitized and automated through Axial as well. And so those are sort of the three reasons why they start using Axial. But like I said, they're good brokers, good M&A advisors. They're constantly out in the market. They're constantly meeting buyers. They're constantly building their own their own Rolodex of relationships that they think are strategic and they're valuable. They don't just hand all of that off to Axial. They use Axial as like augmentation on top of what they're sort of doing for their own account. So you guys help with the exchange of information. You help with the initial NDA. Where do you kind of stop and say, now it's on you guys? Do you actually help with? Yeah, learn? it's discovery of the buyers. Like that's mm. the biggest value, right? Is like building the list of buyers. That's sort of like the most important thing that we do for advisors. And we do the same thing for sellers. Like what is the top of funnel list of buyers that is likely to be interested in this? And then we help them with automation and outreach to all of those buyers. And we help them figure out how to sort and sift and pass and decline on, on which ones. We then automate the NDA and SIM execution process. And once you're down to bids, you don't really need tools because unless you're getting like a hundred bids on a business, I suppose if you're getting like tens and tens and tens of bids on a business, maybe you want like some sort of tool to help organize and centralize all of those bids. But usually small businesses, there's usually like a couple of offers that at the end of the day on a business, sometimes only one, sometimes maybe enough that you could count them on one hand. 
So you don't really need like high powered software to manage sort of three or four bids. So that's kind of where we bookend the process. Usually that's where phone calls and meetings in person are far more valuable than using like a platform like Axial anyway. So we haven't, we don't meddle in that part of the transaction. It's good. I was curious as we all have our own preferences of what our LOIs look like and our purchase and sales agreements. And we've had somebody ask me for a sample out of a, for a earnout. And I was like, okay, I'm going to pull one, but you got to understand this asset purchase agreement is 92 pages long. It's drawn up by an attorney, right? right? This little section I'm going to pull out for you is part of a 92 page document. Are you sure you don't want to see the rest of the document that it went with? <laughs> I'll blank out all the pertinent information. And he's like, why is it so long? And I was like, well, when you hire an attorney to do it, it was a bigger company we were looking at. And I was like, when you hire an attorney to do it, and there's a lot of liabilities, your reps and warranties section is huge. So that's a lot of the reps and warranties. This guy's pretty new. And he's like, oh, should I have something that long? It depends. What are you buying? What's the risk to you? I mean, the one thing we do for buyers that get to the LOI stage, and again, it doesn't really have to do with like the deal funnel. But once a buyer is under LOI on a transaction that they source through Axial, we have a syndicate of lender partners, like lending partners that we, that they can access. So if they need debt financing for the transaction and they want to expand the pool of lenders who they are talking to, we have a syndicate of debt partners who partner with Axial and offer debt to Axial buyers who are using the Axial platform and are looking for debt. And then sometimes they don't need any debt, but they're raising a certain amount of equity. They're putting in some of their own equity, but they need to raise a certain amount of outside equity capital. And so we have an equity syndicate set of partners as well. Most of those are like family offices in America who are looking to invest in private companies, but they don't want to run, they don't want to lead the deal. They just kind of want to be a passive investor and write a $100,000 to $1 million check or something like that. And then the third thing that we offer to the buy side members that are under LOI is we have a couple of partnerships with Q of E firms. Uh, that can do quality of earnings. And then we have a couple of insurance partners that are expert at binding reps and warranties insurance or reps and warranties insurance is like little brother, which is called TLP, transaction liability protection. Mm -hmm. So those are ways that we try and help buyers after the matching has been done and they're further down the funnel. That doesn't happen through our platform. That just happens through sort of like a support team that we have at Axial that, that works with those customers. Now, do you guys automate any of that? So just say I decide I want to finance part of the operation and it's a bigger deal than I'm just reaching out through an SBA lender. I pull up your list of here's investment banks or here's banks that will help finance the transaction. Can you click on them and send them some type of buyer buyer profile and the business profile? Like, here I am as a buyer and here's the deal I'm looking at. Are you interested? Do you guys have anything that helps automate that? Or is it just, here's a list of phone numbers to call? For the debt and equity syndication partners, we've built that into the platform. So you can say, I'm the buyer, I'm looking for financing. This is the deal. Please let me know if you're interested in discussing terms and submitting an offer. And then you can do the same thing on the equity side. For the Q of E and reps and warranties insurance, we just make a we just hand it off via an email introduction. That's cool. That's actually really cool. Let's make sure everybody knows how to reach out to you. We're hitting kind of the top of the hour now. First, before we do that, I've asked you a lot of questions and stuff. Did we miss anything? Is there something I should have asked you? 
I mean, there's so much to dive into in the world of small business M&A. I mean, it's like a, as deep as the ocean, if you really want it to be. I mean, it's been great to talk about these things. I think the most important thing for business owners is to really respect the process and really realize that they need to go through it in a deliberate way. Otherwise, they're really opening themselves up to a lot of risk and a lot of heartache. I'd like to throw my hat in the ring and say that go against the grain and say that I think there's some fantastic business brokers and M&A advisors out there. I think they get disparaged a lot. I think it's no different than any other industry. I think there's really good M&A advisors out there and there's ones that don't do careful work and you need to be able to distinguish between those two. And I'd say the same thing goes for private equity and the acquirers. There's plenty of private equity firms out there that you probably would not want to sell your company to if you really knew what their plans were. And so you're appropriate as a business owner to be careful and to really think through this. But there's also some fantastic private equity investors out there. They're not going to ruin your company after you give them the keys. They're interested in growing businesses. They're interested in making businesses more valuable. I guess I just encourage anybody who's thinking about transacting to not rely on the stereotypes, come to like overly quick decisions or to rely on what's being said on Twitter or some blog somewhere. Just take your time, do the work and don't rush. I think those are like really important things, whether you're a buyer, seller, broker, you just do the work and things tend to work out a lot better. Maybe that's all for now, Ron. I mean, the rest of it would take us another days and days and days to get through. You know, I've had a few people on the show more than once. You might be one of those. We might call you in six months and go, hey, let's expand on what we're talking about. Before we get off here, let's make sure everybody knows it's axial.com. So that's, that's the main thing, right? The website. If somebody wants to work with you on something, ask you a question or whatever, what's the best way for people to reach out? Is that your LinkedIn or? Yeah, I'm active on LinkedIn and responsive on LinkedIn. If you just punch in Peter Lehrman Axial into LinkedIn, you'll find me right away and you can message me on LinkedIn. You can also get my email address from LinkedIn. I'm not the most entertaining of characters on Twitter, but I am on Twitter and I happily respond to DMs on Twitter as well. My Twitter handle is Pete Lehrman, P-E-T-E-L-E-H-R-M-A-N. I'll make sure those are in the show notes for people that can get a chance to download the show notes. If you're driving this, please don't do that. <laughs> so I got a lot of guys that listen to the show on the drive or on their commutes and stuff. I always try to warn people, to, don't try to take notes when you're doing this. We, you can always, we do good show notes that are out there. Just pull the show notes up when you're done. You actually have a podcast too, right? You actually have a monthly one. That's right. That's pretty cool. Tell us about that a little bit and we'll call that, wrap it up with that. Yeah. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you letting me give it a, a, a plug. It is called Masters in Small Business M&A. And I am interviewing buyers, business advisors, and business owners, all of whom are like practitioners who have had meaningful amount of transaction experience buying or selling small businesses and having a ton of fun with it. I try to push out more than one episode a month, but it tends to not be more than two. It's like a couple of episodes a month. Some of them are people who have used Axial and that's how I built a relationship with them. Some of them are people who have never used Axial, but who I think really highly of and who I wanted to get onto the podcast. And so, yeah, feel free to take a look at that. It's called Masters in Small Business M&A. Thanks for the plug, Rob. Appreciate it's it. actually really good. I always plug other good shows. There's plenty of content out there. So thank you for being on the show today. Looking forward to seeing the other shows you do. I might Don't be surprised. If I find good shows, sometimes that's where I find my guests. So sometimes I'm like, man, this guy's really good. I got different questions for him. I'm going to invite <laughs> him. Yeah, so that'd be cool. And it's the same thing here if you ever see you be on my show. And you're like, man, I'd really like to get that guy over here. Reach out to me. I'll get him on there. But thank you for being here today. We'll call that a show. 
and that was cool. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate the opportunity. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now